Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We are in a series called Work and Rest, where we are exploring these life-giving rhythms God has designed for us. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We're going to just look at one verse a little bit later. And again, if you're getting used to your Bibles, it's near the last fourth of your Bible. Galatians, Ephesians, that's where we're going to be. And if you want to use a black Bible, I didn't look up the page number, but it's in there. Ephesians 4. Hey, I, I just want to tell you, we're in week number five of a nine-week series called Work and Rest. And this is today we conclude talking about work. Next week, we'll transition into rest. In fact, you can read more in Brian's uh, Bolton column this week about that and some of the resources that may help. But if you're following along in the notes, here's what I hope we can do while we're together in these nine weeks. We must recapture these two God-designed, life-giving rhythms of work and rest. We must recapture these two life-giving, God-honoring, God-designed, life-giving rhythms. Why? I mentioned this the first week, but if you haven't noticed, we have a workforce crisis in the United States. Not only is it difficult to find enough people to show up, when they do show up, there's no guarantee that there's quality going on. And so when we start to peel it back, we realize that in the United States now, work in many cases is viewed as a necessary evil rather than a God-designed, life-giving rhythm. The other reason we need rest, we'll talk more about this in the next four weeks, is because anxiety is at a critical point in our country, perhaps like never before. There is anxiety breaking out in families, in schools, in organizations, in businesses. Many cases, some people are no longer even able to function because they're so overtaken by anxiety and how we need to learn how to rest in such a way that we are renewed and we are able to be the people God made us to be. So we need to recapture these two God-designed, life-giving rhythms. And as we think about work today... I want to share, I've been sharing with you that one of the things that's inspired me to be part of this series along with Brian and Chuck and others is that uh, as I've been reading a book in the last few years by Timothy Keller and then facilitating it in our community with a number of other leaders, um, I've just been affected by some of the things I never saw before in the scripture. And again, I think we've got a picture of the book. I've been mentioning this to you, and it's also out at our resource center, or you can order it online. The the point is, is if you're interested, uh, this book has shared some things. And today I want to share with you one of the things is that, uh, that I had never really seen before is that work is actually meant for the common good. That's the title of this sermon Uh, And we're going to talk about that. What does it mean for the common good? But this goes back to an idea that kind of relates to July 4th. Today uh, and tomorrow, we're going to be celebrating the fact that our country is 266 years old. But when our country was about 65 years old, uh, something happened. And I'm going to just put the quote up here on the screen. This was something I read online, and it'll tie into what I'm going to share from the book as well as we look at scripture today. So here's the first uh, quote. Do we have that? In 1831, a young French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville, visited America and after traveling through the country for a year, 
returned home and wrote Democracy in America. The Frenchman identified individualism as a major factor in the changing culture of the 19th century. This is, again, 200 years ago. It defined as a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdraw into the circle of family and friends with this little society formed to his taste. He gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. Tocqueville was apprehensive about the future of democracy should each individual choose to stay shut up in the solitude of his own heart. He noticed something was already potentially happening in our country, and that would be is that we began to become more and more individualistic. And to the extent that we become that way, we become people that are no longer a nation and no longer able to live out the freedom that God gave us. Now, so that book influenced another book that was written back in 1985, and that's where the introduction to the book, Every Good Endeavor, starts. So here's how the book opens, and let me read that. Robert Bella's landmark book, Habits of the Heart, which is a phrase that was taken from de Tocqueville's book, first published in 1985, helped many people name the thing that was and still is, eating away at the cohesiveness of our culture expressive individualism. Elsewhere, Bella argued that Americans had created a culture that elevated individual choice and expression to such a level that there was no longer any shared life, no commanding truths or values that tied us together. As Bella wrote, we are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person, but our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced anymore by a sense of the whole or concern, here's the phrase, for the common good. To make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. And suddenly I started realizing that one of the things that's pulling on the fabric of our country, that's pulling even in my own heart, is this idea that I become more and more interested as long as I'm happy. That's all that matters. Now let me just say to you really quickly that I don't, I don't know how to explain my testimony of meeting Jesus Christ any other way than to say B.C. before Christ I used people. I, I remember as early as my elementary years talking to one of my friends out of his best toy. I used people. I saw them as a means to an end. I saw them as a way to advance myself. And at 15, when I met Christ, I had enough empirical evidence to know that when the Bible called me a sinner that was just con- turned in on myself and selfish, it had me pegged. It was not name calling. And I needed a savior. And what I would say is that since Jesus Christ came into my life, that I still am capable of becoming self-centered, but that now what I can say is, is that I'm more interested than I ever was before in helping other people and not just using them. 
And that means that every day I still need to wake up and make sure that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and letting him have control. Because you see, sin turns us in on ourselves, saving grace and Jesus Christ living in us turns us outward. And this is what I want to talk to you today about work. So if you're following along, expressive individualism, if you're following along, can eclipse or overshadow concern for the common good. Expressive individualism. In other words, all I care about is expressing myself and what I think and I want my way. Expressive individualism can eclipse concern for the common good. Not only in a family, the common good of the family, the common good of a city, the common good of a team, the common good of a company, the common good of a church. Expressive individualism can eclipse concern for the common good. And again, individualism, if you're following along, overvalues self-fulfillment and self-advancement. Individualism overvalues self-fulfillment and self-advancement. I hope no one hears me say today that God doesn't want you to live a fulfilling life. He does. But if you and I do not balance that individual self-fulfillment with an idea that we also live in a world where there are other people that he cares about equally, then we will continue to go on this spiral that we're in as a country. We'll also find it threatening even our churches. Because if we don't understand that when God made us, he made us to do one thing well, and that was to know him and follow him. And so Jesus was once asked, how do you get life right? What's the most important thing? Someone once said, how do I experience life the way God made me to experience it? What are the most important things God's instructed us? Jesus says, I can answer that. And I put it in the first gray box. So would you mind reading that out loud with me from Mark 12, 30 and 31? Let's read that together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, think about this. He says, look, if you want your life to be oriented in the right direction, then instead of being caught up with yourself, you need to understand that God made you to know him and to love him with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all yourself, to give yourself to him first and then... And here's, this is a tricky part. Don't separate this next part. As you do that, he will show you that he loves your neighbor and he wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's what I want us to see today as we unpack this together. I hope that you can see that God designed work as an act of love for your neighbor. And I hope that I can build a case for that today, that you can see that the way you and I do our work, and I want to say this right at the beginning, because I know some of you are going to go, I'm retired. I'm happy for you. Some people think I am. (laughs) But if you're retired, you've got a paid job. If you work at home, if you uh, volunteer, whatever work you do, do it with all your heart, loving the Lord and loving your neighbor. Because if you understand work the way God designed it, it is meant to be an act of love, not just for yourself, but for your neighbor. And when we balance those things, 
God can really work. So if you're following along, notice with me right here. God designed work as a way to love and serve our neighbor. God designed work as a way to love and serve our neighbor. I don't know if you've ever seen this quote by Martin Luther, but I I love this. It says, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbor does. Isn't that true? We... Our neighbors need to know that we're going to be giving our best version of ourselves. I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a great neighbor, you know how powerful the impact of that can be. If you've ever had a bad neighbor, you know the power of the impact that can be. And the question is, what kind of neighbor am I? When I go to work, am I the kind of neighbor people go, I'm glad they're my neighbor? Or am I the kind of neighbor they go, gee whiz. They're just draining. They're just only about themselves. And so what God wants to teach us is that this was always meant to do that. I I list out to the right Leviticus 19, which, by the way, is an incredible chapter if you've never read it. In fact, you know, Leviticus 19, verse 18 is where Jesus is quoting from. Love your neighbor as yourself. God's giving all kinds of instructions to the Israelites about how to be neighborly to each other. But one of the things he says is, look, when you, and this was a group of farmers for the most part, right? Agricultural. He says, when you do your farming, do not, you know, harvest all the way out to the edges. Leave that grain for the poor and the foreigner. In other words, when you do your work, remember your neighbor. Wow. He's building it in. Now, notice if you're following along is that we love our neighbor well when we do competent work. We love our neighbor well when we do competent work. What do I mean by competent? Excellent. Well done. The very best we can do. Because you see, when we do sloppy, slipshod work, which is what the United States has become known for more and more around the world, it affects people. They lose trust. They're disappointed. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. And when that happens, it feels very unloving. Like they must not give a rip about me when they did their work. But when you and I do competent work, when they can tell that we are giving our very best, it feels a lot like love. It feels a lot like being a good neighbor. And this is so important. And this is something that when God comes to live in our lives through Christ and his Holy Spirit, he stirs us to give our best when we feel like being lazy. And we all feel like being lazy or cruising or coasting sometimes, don't we? But one of the things about work is that it builds our character. Friends, have you ever stopped to think about the fact that when Jesus came to earth, how did he spend the first 30 years of his life? As a carpenter. Why in the world didn't he just get to it? Why wasn't he just born at 30 and then spend the last three years? I think God wanted to teach us that he is at work in the ordinary moments of life. And that he wants us to see that work, when it's done with him and for him, is glorious. Now, Dorothy Sayers was someone who wrote an essay on work. She was a brilliant, brilliant person back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And she wrote this essay. Look at what she says uh, about work in that essay. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. 
that the very first demand this religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. I want to ask you, do you think when Jesus built something, people could tell that he loved them by the way he made it? I really believe that. I believe that with all my heart. I believe the tents that the Apostle Paul made for people were good tents. And one of the things we see is that competent work speaks that. But let me give you an example from the Bible. Have you ever read Genesis, the book of Genesis? There's a Joseph in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm talking about the Joseph in the Old Testament. He was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Joseph got sold by his brothers into Egypt. We talked about this recently, and what happened is, is we talked about how he was in the house of Potiphar, and the house of Potiphar was blessed because Joseph was in it. But eventually, Potiphar got upset with him because his wife falsely accused Joseph, and so he gets thrown into prison, and in prison, he's even faithful there. He does his work in such a way that the prison guard turns everything over to him. But one day, through an act of God, one of the people that had been in prison with him remembers a favor that Joseph did for him, and in one day, Joseph goes from the prison to second in command. And God gives him a way of understanding how to bless Egypt. And that is that there's going to be seven great years of prosperity and then seven years of famine. And the seven years of famine are going to make everybody forget the seven years of prosperity. So he tells Pharaoh, find a wise man to prepare for this so that you don't go into destruction. He's telling the person that he should not necessarily care about, but it's his neighbor. Now look at what it says in Genesis 41. I love this. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. And during the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Then it goes on. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. And they found someone who loved his neighbor by the way he had done his work. And if you go to Genesis chapter 47, the Egyptians eventually say to Joseph, you saved our lives. Why? Because he didn't just think about his own advancement. He thought about a way to advance more people than himself. And so if you're following along, here's one more thing I want you to see as an act of love is that our attitude and consideration of our coworkers matters. Our attitude and consideration of our coworkers matters. Have you ever thought about how much your attitude affects other people? Let me ask you a question. Would your coworkers say that you're a complainer and a whiner or a lifter? Would they say that when they see you show up at work, they actually are more inspired to do their work? Or would they say that you actually pull them down? In what ways do you and I do our work? Are we the kind of people that lift others up? And when we do get it wrong, are we the first ones to tell people, you know what, I am so sorry for the way my attitude rubbed off on you. 
that is not helpful to you. No one's going to always get it perfect at work, but are you and I sensitive enough to God's spirit that we are lifting up the temperature? You know, here's the thing. Are you a thermometer or a thermostat? I'll get it right. A thermometer or a thermostat? You know the difference? A thermometer is affected by whatever the temperature is around them. A thermostat sets the temperature. And you and I have an opportunity every day. Some people go, well, I just can't help my attitude. Sure you can. And one of the things is, is that also when we have consideration for our coworkers, they notice that. Because sometimes, again, if we're into expressive individualism, I don't give a rip about anybody else. I'm not considering anybody else except myself and how it's going for me. But when you and I are affected by Jesus Christ, let me show you Ephesians 4 here. I'm going to eventually just show you for the rest of our time one verse that really, really is a way for us to think about work as an act of love. But Ephesians 4, it tells us, I think we've got verse 22. Here's what it says. Here's the context of the verse I'm about to show you. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And verse 23 is saying there, be made new in the attitude of your minds. When you walk into work, Say, God, help me to have your attitude right here. Show me how to see the common grace that's at work in people around me, even though they may not know you or acknowledge you yet. At the same time, show me that work is good for me, and this is the way you develop character, just like you did in your own son, Jesus Christ. Show me that if I'm trying to make work my identity, that I'm going to still be disappointed because there's going to be thorns and thistles. But God, show me how to have the kind of attitude that lifts up in this world, whether anybody follows me or not. Show me how to have that kind of attitude. I'll just share with you, some of you know that I've done training both inside and outside our church with different groups and tried to figure out how do we have healthy culture? What contributes to a healthy culture in a family? What contributes to a healthy culture in a team? What creates a healthy culture in a company? And one of the things that I stumbled on two years ago, I think I heard from another leader. It says, if you want to, you can actually turn to one of your teammates or coworkers and say, what's one thing I could do that would help you flourish? What's one thing? I can't do everything. And I may not even be able to come through on the one thing you want me to do. But if you were to guess one way that I actually help you do your work better, what's one thing I could do? Friends, I'll just give an example. There's a teammate in our staff here that I have to turn in a certain amount of information so they're ready for this weekend every time I speak. And years ago when I was speaking a lot more regularly, I just said, what's the best rhythm for you? When do you need that in such a way that I don't put you behind the eight ball? And as we began to work on that together, we both got into a God-designed, life-giving rhythm of teamwork like that. And I noticed that I was able to help them flourish so that I I wasn't always dragging them back. And it was good for my heart. It enlarged my heart size by thinking that way. You see, Jesus doesn't tell us to love our neighbor because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He realizes that if I don't love my neighbor, my heart size shrinks. But when I love my neighbor, my heart size grows And so this is part of how work is an act of love. So I told you I was going to get to one verse. Let me get about it. Here we are. It's Ephesians 4.28. I've listed it there in that second gray box. Do you mind reading it with me? And then let's unpack it before we take communion together. Ready? 
Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So how do we contribute to human flourishing in the world? How do we do it? Through our work. Here we go. First, if we've been stealing, we must steal no longer. If you're following along, if we've been stealing, we must steal no longer. You said, Jeff, I thought we were talking about work. We're talking about work. Three out of four employees in the United States steal from their employer. Do you realize the cost of many of the things we pay for are exaggerated because of employee theft in the United States? It's massive, friends. And it happens. And I told you three weeks ago that I stole from my employer when I was in my 20s and needed to send him a check because I had not been working eight hours pay, eight hours work for eight hours pay. There's all kinds of ways to steal. Let me just read several to you. <clears throat> One, there's eight ways to uh, employees steal time. One, unauthorized clocking in and out. Two, disappearing on the job. Three, employees round up hours that they report. Four, sleeping on the job. That's impressive. Five, extended lunch breaks habitually. Six, Distractions from work computers, like browsing social media and shopping. Seven, on mobile phones instead of working. Eight, excessive smoke breaks or long breaks of any kind. Stealing company inventory and property, like tools, stamps, pens, personal copies. Stealing data, stealing money from the register. Misusing company credit cards. Falsifying expense reports, calling in sick when you're not. Friends, that is stealing. That is breaking the trust of your employer or your company. And you may say, well, it's an impersonal thing. It's your neighbor. And the way you and I do our work either is an act of love and a way of loving the Lord first with all our heart and then our neighbor as ourself or it's not. And so stealing, if we're stealing, we must steal no longer. We must stop mistreating our neighbors that way. Because not only does it take from our employer or our boss, but it also gives an example to other people around us and it pulls them down and does not lift them up and show what a noble person looks like. You know, when I talked about competent work, I'll never forget this phrase as long as I live. Excellence honors God and inspires people. Friends, one of the ways you and I can galvanize greatness, again, in our workplaces is by giving our very best, definitely not by stealing. Now, let me say this too. I've seen people that they take care of everybody else, but they don't take care of their own families. And the Bible says we need to make sure we take care of our own families first or are worse than an unbeliever. And we do need to make sure that when we work, we do take care of our bills and we don't make other people and steal from them. But the second thing is, is notice is that God made us to work doing something useful with our hands. God made us to work doing something useful with our hands. Now, again, I said to you earlier that I'm not just talking about paid jobs. So one of the things I admire about my wife is that last year when she retired after 29 years of teaching preschool, 
One of the things she began to ask is, what can I do that would be useful, helpful, that would add benefit to other people besides just myself? And so whatever your situation is, God's desire was never, ever to see the latter part of your life to be idle. It was never, ever just to say, what do I feel like doing? And then all day long, that's all you do. There's nothing wrong with doing some of that. We're going to talk about rest. We're going to talk about recreation. There's times to do some of that. But if that's all we do and it's not balanced by this thought of what can I do for someone else? How can I benefit the common good of our city or my family or other people beyond me? Then you and I are not living up the fullness of the work. And again, let me just say this. If this sounds like, oh, brother, friends, I'll just say this. The most fulfilling things I've ever done is when I'm turned outward and when I'm giving myself away rather than just trying to bring the whole front door, whole world to my front door. Again, you know this, don't you? That ultimately self-indulgence and self-fulfillment, if it's the only thing you go after, is ultimately boring. It's ultimately dissatisfying. It'll shrivel your soul. But when you and I begin to say, oh, God made me for a larger purpose than that. Now I just need to get about it and figure out ways that I can work and do something useful with my hands. But I've told you this before. My parents are now in their 80s. And my mother for years has been disabled by some of the things that have affected her health. So let me tell you how she does something useful with her hands. She takes her mobile phone and she texts people. And she prays for them when she folds her hands. Friends, you and I can find a way, if it's in our heart to do so, to work and do something useful with our hands. And God wants us to do that because he knows that we were made, we were designed, we were created to be givers, not just takers. And he wants us to be enriching like that to the world. But notice another reason why we do that. We do something useful so we have something to share. We do something useful so we have something to share. So I just told you that, uh, I, I didn't just tell you, sorry. I, I, we just watched a video. $70,000 from our church to two other places that are helping refugees. I don't know how that affects you when I see people that are able to eat and have shelter because we didn't just pay attention to ourselves. I, I'm so moved by that. Cherry Hills, you have done this again and again and again. You are such a thoughtful church. And when we live this way, we are living our God-given purpose. Some of you are able to give something to share because you've worked doing something useful with your hands in the past, and God has blessed that and accumulated that. Some of you are giving out of the overflow of what you have now. Some of you say, well, I can't give as much as somebody else. You can give something. And whatever it is, you're little. If you place it in Jesus' hands, he'll make it go farther. But friends, let's never, ever get to a place where all we do is think about ourselves. Let's do something useful. So we have something to share. And I just want to also say, every time I drive on this campus, there are people that were sitting on lawnmowers and that pulled weeds this week 
and they look for ways to do something useful with their hands. And excellence honors God and inspires people. When you and I live this way, last thing is that we also pray for our city and seek its well-being. There's an interesting verse in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, that I love. And again, it's part of this whole idea of loving our neighbor or loving wherever God places us. But here's what he tells people when they're exiled away from their country. They just can't think about anything else but getting back home. But he says, look, first of all, it's going to be 70 years, so you might as well settle down. But while you're settling down in this city, look at what he says. These are your enemies. These are the people that took you over. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you find your welfare. So he's just saying, look, if you wonder why I want you to give yourself to other people like that is because it goes better for you than when you become self-centered. But also, friends, don't you, why did God place our church in this city? Because he has a response, he has a role for us to play. And again, I want to just say this. This crazy pandemic's gone on long enough. Anybody agree? But here's what I want to say. So many of you capitalized on doing something during this pandemic. We were able to touch a number of different ministries. We were able to help a number of different people because so many of you continue to think beyond yourself. Way to go. Let's continue to pray for this city. I want to make sure that the work I do in this city lifts this city. I want to make sure the work you do in this city lifts our city so our city's better. Now, so the last thing is, I've mentioned this every, uh, the last few weeks, and that is, is if any of you are interested in studying the Every Good Endeavor study, it's an eight-week thing starting August 17th. I, some of you signed up last week. It goes to October 5th, eight weeks, 6.30 in the morning. Some of you are still asleep. 6.30 in the morning to 7.30 in the morning. We meet at O'Shea uh, University, which is behind Target and Walmart there off Freedom Drive. And just know that if you're interested in signing up, here is the email address that you would need to sign and at least apply. Again, there's limited space, so if we don't do it with you this time, we'll do it again uh, another time coming up in the future. But that's the information. Again, you need to RSVP in the next 12 days, but please be aware of that. Now, when I was on sabbatical, one of the things that I did was I got some more certification and I tried to keep growing in my leadership because I sense that God is not done with me both here inside the church and also in this city and the greater community, the common good. So when I went and spent time down in Florida with John Maxwell, one of the things that he taught us that day was something I have not been able to get out of my mind. And here's the phrase that he taught us that day. Would you mind reading it with me? We are people of value who value people and add value to them. I, I cannot get this out of my mind. By the grace of God, we are people of value who value people and add value to them. So when you and I are thinking about this, uh, here's the last way of thinking about doing work God's way. If you're following along, Lord, whatever work I do, whether it's volunteer paid, whether it's a stay at home, whether it's you know, doing something that's visible or invisible, whatever work I do, show me how to enrich others. Show me how to enrich others. Now, I know some of you are going to put your notes away, and that's more than fine. It won't bother me at all. Okay? But here's what I want to say. So when I was working on this message, I was thinking about this. Brian Schwerberg and I have often commented about this together. 
Mark Batterson is a person that we spent some time with back in 2008. He's written a book called Circle Maker and some other books that some of you have told me you appreciate. Mark Batterson says before he preaches every time, he prays this simple prayer. Lord, help me help people. I prayed it this morning. I pray that the way I do my work loves and serves you. So how do we, how do we stay on track? Because I told you, I feel that southbound, downward gravitational pull to be individualistic and self-centered every day. So how do we do it? One of the things I would just suggest is every day, say, Lord, I give myself to you. Help me live out the purpose you made me for. Lord, help me help people. And I can't close without telling you a story I've told before. But General William Booth founded the Salvation Army. Yesterday or the day before was the anniversary of the founding of the Salvation Army in 1865. In 1910, he was disabled and frail. And on Christmas Eve, he normally would address uh, the different uh, members. And there was a convention uh, that he had normally, he would be at, he would speak to, and he would envision all of the members and the, the delegates from the Salvation Army, which by this time had spread all over the world. But he wasn't able to go. And things were expensive in those days, so he tried to think of what he could do that would inspire the Salvation Army teammates of his. So he decided to send a telegram across the pond. And when he sent the telegram, people were all excited to, to know that he was going to be at the conference, but then they found out he wasn't. So the MC said, but he did send a telegram, and I'm going to read that at the beginning of the convention. So everybody made sure they were there for that telegram. And when the man opened the telegram, at first he was kind of shocked. And then he said, ladies and gentlemen, General William Booth's vision for the Salvation Army is just one word. And that word is others. Sometimes I just say that word to myself when I see myself start turning back inside. Because God made us to be people that look out beyond ourselves. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.